October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast. We are returning to the color line, part nine. Now, the last time we talked about the color line, we talked about the strikes at Oakwood College and the foundation of regional conferences under the leadership of Black Adventists in 1944 and how all of that came about. Now, that episode was a couple of years ago by now because time is absolutely flying in life. So you're going to have to dig deep into the archives to find it if you want to listen to it and refresh your memory. It's finally time to talk about Adventists in the civil rights movement in America. But before we talk about the Adventist part of this, we should just say a word about the civil rights part of this, because I know a lot of you are listening from outside the United States, and some of this might seem strange to you, as many American traditions and bits of history seem strange to you. You might be wondering, didn't America free their slaves in December 1865 with the ratification of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution? Well, I'm, first of all, very impressed that you know that, but also... I would remind you that there's a difference between the word free and free, okay? To make a long story short, America entered an era we call Jim Crow. In the Jim Crow era, African Americans were free from slavery, but they weren't fully free. Laws were passed restricting their ability to vote, determining where and where they could not live in a city, what bathrooms they could use, what drinking fountains they could use, what restaurants and cafeterias they could enter, what types of loans they could receive, and at what interest rate. In nearly every area of life, they had fewer rights and privileges than their white brethren. And there are innumerable books about the Jim Crow era, so look up a few on Amazon if you're interested. We're not going to go and rehash all of that here. Now, the purpose of the Civil Rights Movement was to draw attention to this discrimination, in an effort, of course, to bring it to an end. When we talk about the Civil Rights Movement, we usually start with the Supreme Court decision in 1954, Brown v. Board of Education, which declared racial segregation in schools to be unconstitutional. But it's important to understand that this wasn't the only Civil Rights Movement, okay? We often talk about the Civil Rights Movement as if there's only one. It's not that African Americans suddenly woke up in the 1950s and said, gee, you know, this this country is stacked against us. We don't seem to be getting ahead. Martin Luther King Jr. wasn't the first person to call for change, okay? Nor did this movement for civil rights end when several civil rights bills were finally passed by Congress in the early 1960s. So, when I talk about the civil rights movement in this episode, I mean the phase of the civil rights movement that lasted roughly from 1954 to 1968. There were civil rights movements before that, there were civil rights movements after that, but I'm talking about this one, the most popular phase of the civil rights movement. Okay, Adventists were involved at nearly every step of this civil rights movement. But even if you lived through those decades, you'd be forgiven if you didn't notice. Because some of the most active and courageous Adventists during this time were ignored by church publication until usually decades after their deeds. Now, over the past year's worth of episodes, we've talked about other things happening in the 1950s and 1960s, like questions on doctrine, Emil Andreasen's protest, Brinsmead's whatever you want to call it, world tour. Oh, and who can forget Wheeland and Short? It just seems like a decade and a half of just constant controversy that we've been covering. And these were fairly public, fairly intramural 
controversies. Other Adventists, Black Adventists, had other things on their minds. And before we get into this, let me just give a quick shout out to Dr. Ben Baker, teaches at the University of Maryland and runs blacksdahistory.org. It's a website and a YouTube channel. And Dr. Baker was instrumental in helping get this episode going. I reached out to him and I was like, hey, you know, where should I start with this? Can you give me some ideas here? And then he sent a laundry list of names and events and links. That's the most important thing to get me going. And uh, I just really appreciate that. So if you're interested in this kind of content, go check out his work. He's been around a lot longer than I have, and uh, he does some good stuff. Okay, moving on. Chances are you've heard of Rosa Parks. She was a 42-year-old black woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus in order to make way for a white passenger. Rosa was sitting in the colored section of the bus because many buses had segregated seating. And Rosa had run into this bus driver before. There's a little history that she had with him. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, a few years earlier, a couple years earlier, she boarded the front of the bus, which is where you had the board. You would pay your fare. And then if you were black, you would have to get off the front of the bus, walk outside to the rear entrance to the bus, and then get on there. Why? Because the white bus riders were sitting in the front, and apparently they didn't want you as a black person walking between their rows to get to the back of the bus. You had to go outside and come back in. So anyways, one time with this bus driver, she paid, she stepped outside, started walking to the back of the bus, and the bus driver just took off. She paid, never got to ride the bus. So she had a little history with this bus driver. Now, moving forward to 1955, she was sitting in the colored section of the bus didn't realize it was the same driver who had abandoned her before, and everything was fine, except the whites-only section began to fill up. Now, whites, they weren't told that they were out of luck, okay, if they filled up their section of the bus. What would happen is part of the colored section would be colonized. Wait, is that the right word I want to use here? And basically, it would become a whites-only row. Okay, and then any, any, any black people who were sitting in that row would have to move further back. And if there wasn't enough room further back, they would have to get off the bus. That's how it worked. Well, that's exactly what happened here. Rosa was asked by this bus driver to move. She didn't want to move. And she was influenced, she said, by this brutal murder that had happened months before a 14-year-old Emmett Till, who had been killed by two white men, who were then, by the way, acquitted during a trial. And just so you know, a black Avenist assisted with the prosecution of those two men, and after the trial, he had to flee to save his own life. Now, the next year, both men actually confessed to the crime. They did, and they sold their story, made thousands of dollars off of it, but escaped prosecution because they couldn't be tried for the same crime twice. So once they were declared innocent, they were free to admit that they had committed the crime and there was nothing that anybody could do about it. And just days before her ride on the bus, Rosa Parks had attended a rally at a Baptist church where it was learned that Emmett Till's murderers had gotten away with it. So this is fresh on Rosa's mind as she's riding this bus. Now, just to tell you a little bit what happens after this, after she's arrested for refusing to give up her seat on the bus, a young preacher named Martin Luther King shows up in Montgomery, where she lived, and led a boycott of the buses, and so his career really began. Now, Rosa Parks wasn't the only black woman who refused to give up her seat on the bus. 
11 years before Rosa, 11 years, there was Irene Morgan, a black Adventist woman who had refused to give up her seat. And this story is just epic, okay? When she was handed her arrest warrant, Irene tore it up and threw it out the window. This, of course, infuriates the officer. By the way, she told the officer, like, how can this arrest warrant be for me? You don't even know my name. Like, he just boards the bus and hands it to her. There was not really much of an investigation or, or whatever. Like, she's guilty. Here you go. So she tears it up. She throws it off. This off She throws it out the window. This officer is upset and lays hands on her to physically remove her from her seat. This is what she said. Quote, when he put his hands on me, I kicked him where men should not be kicked. End quote. Mm-hmm. Mm. You don't mess with Irene Morgan, okay? <laughs> because then the deputy, that, that officer is down for the count, right? He's out of action. Then the deputy comes on board, and this is what she said next. Quote, I started to bite him, but he looked dirty, so I couldn't bite him. End quote. Dang, girl. Even Dracula's like, you're trying to bite people in broad daylight? Man, that's too much even for me. But Irene had just suffered a miscarriage. She had just been in Virginia to spend time with family. Now she was just returning home to see her husband and to get medical clearance so she could go back to the factory building bombers for America in World War II. It's safe to say she wasn't in the mood to be told where she could and could not sit. Well, it took three cops to get Irene Morgan off that bus. She pleaded guilty to resisting arrest and paid her fine because, yes, she did resist arrest. But she said she was innocent of violating the state of Virginia's segregation laws because she was on an interstate bus. And her lawyers, she was represented, by the way, in part by Thurgood Marshall before the Supreme Court. But her lawyers argued that since it was an interstate bus, the interstate commerce clause is what takes effect and therefore... Only Congress can pass laws to govern that. Anyways, I, I, I'm not a lawyer, but you get the idea, okay? In any case, the decision was made by the Supreme Court that her lawyer's arguments were, in fact, correct. But it had little immediate effect because it was a decision, after all, about interstate commerce rules, not race. But while the case was pending, the Freedom Riders took to the buses the next summer singing... On June the 3rd, the high court said, when you ride interstate, Jim Crow is dead. Get on the bus, sit any place, because Irene Morgan won her case. You don't have to ride Jim Crow. How cool is that? Now, one of the things you have to understand is how the Second World War affected African Americans. Many of us in the West talk about the Second World War like it was the closest thing to a just war that has existed in modern times, okay? A lot of controversy about Vietnam, even Korea, of course, Gulf Wars and other wars that have happened around the world. But it's World War II, we look at, like, this is the clearest good and evil thing that ever existed, okay, in many people's minds. It, it wasn't, by the way, okay? There's a lot of complicating factors in there, but that's just generally how it's seen. Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo are the bad guys. But for black America, it, it wasn't so simple. Some felt trapped. After all, it's not like the liberal democracies of the West had been especially good to them. Is this even our fight, many wondered? To fight for a country that doesn't seem to want us or value us? An editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, a black-owned paper, helped push his readers in a certain direction in 1942. Quote, 
where white America must fight on foreign soil for the salvation of these United States and for the preservation of democracy, black Americans must fight and die on these same battlefields, not merely for the salvation of America, not merely to secure the same degree of democracy for black Americans that white Americans have long enjoyed, but to establish precedent for a worldwide principle of free association among men of all races, creeds, and colors. That's the black man's stake, end quote. Now, the author went on, quote, reduced to its very essence, this means that black America must fight two wars and win in both. There is the convulsive war abroad, there is the bloodless war at home. The first must be fought with the destructive weapons of science, the other must be fought with the pen in the classrooms and on the speaking platforms. If we are not equal to the sacrifice, we might as well rest our pens, padlock the classrooms, and return to our old slave masters." End quote. This became known as the Double V Program, the Double Victory Program. Win the war overseas, that's the first victory. Win the war for civil rights at home, that's the second victory. More than a million black men and women served in the war and often distinguished themselves. They served under General Patton, under General Douglas MacArthur in the Philippines as fighter pilots over Germany and in the Marines in the Pacific. One black Marine went home on leave and was arrested by the police for impersonating a Marine because the officers knew a black man couldn't possibly be a Marine. Louisiana police were accused of killing 10 African-American soldiers. Indeed, African-Americans were fighting two wars. So when the first war ended, after the blood had been spilt, after they had stood shoulder to shoulder before the altar of sacrifice, after they had done their part to preserve liberty for all, it was crushing to realize how many white Americans believed that this didn't change anything at home. The first war took four years to win. The second war would take far longer. After World War II, you had black men and black women who realized their value in society. They had assumed the same risks as white soldiers, but hadn't come away with the same victory. Society didn't always recognize the value that they knew that they had, including, at times, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's important to understand this statistical number, okay? The share of black Adventists was rising dramatically after the war. Okay, in 1944, they had about 18,000 African-American Adventists in America. I guess that was a little redundant, wasn't it? Anyways, 18,000 in 1944 to nearly 74,000 in 1970. From 18 to 74,000 in just 26 years. And by the time you get to 1970, one out of five Seventh-day Adventists in America were black, 20%. All right, keep that in mind as we go through the rest of this episode because it'll help understand, it'll help us understand the, the changing dynamics, okay? As you grow in, in market share as a percentage of Adventists, you, you're going to want to assume an appropriately louder voice, shall we say, in how things go. All right, like I said, keep that in mind. Alfonso Green had encountered Adventism for the first time in 1940 at an NAACP meeting in North Carolina. He met W.R. Saxon, a leader in the NAACP who also happened to be 
in Avenus. Saxon began giving Green pamphlets, and then, boom, he became a baptized member of the church. Green then replaced Saxon as vice president in the state of North Carolina, serving until he finally went to Emmanuel Missionary College, now Andrews University, in 1952. There, Green realized that the school had a policy of segregated housing, so he bought a trailer to live in, but college officials refused to let him stay. A member of the community offered to let Green and two other black families park their trailers on his land, and while this technically violated state law, you weren't allowed to have more than two trailers on your property unless you registered as a trailer park community, okay? Like, who was going to notice, though? It's not like state officials are prowling around Little Berry in Springs, Michigan, right? Well, chances are they wouldn't find out. Well, they didn't need to prowl Berry in Springs, Michigan, because, again, college leaders called the state to complain. Green was evicted and ended up dropping out of college for five years in order to save up enough money to buy his own property so he could go to college. And after Green graduated, nine years after he enrolled, he moved to Huntsville, Alabama, where two women from Oakwood College visited the Huntsville Central Church, which was a predominantly white congregation. A deacon at the door tried to turn them away because, you know, wrong skin color, but they entered anyway. The pastor stopped his sermon when he saw them and quoted Ellen White's counsel that black and white members should worship separately, and then he asked them to leave. Well, they were embarrassed, right? They, they went back to Oakwood, and of course, word got out. And Alfonso Green, our new graduate from Emmanuel Missionary College or Andrews University, wasn't going to have it. He took some other Oakwood students, and they entered the church the next week, and the deacons kicked them out. And then the week following, Green returned with more students. So the church's leadership decided to close the church, because if we're not open and worshiping the Lord, then you can't come. Well, then Green contacted a local TV station to let them know what was happening. The president of Oakwood, put in a very difficult spot, met with faculty and students, urged them to not go back to the central church. Green said, well, I'm not a student here. I'm going anyway. And so the president said, well, please don't take students. Green said, okay, I'm not going to encourage any students to come. But you know what? Several students came anyway, including John F. Street, the future Avenus mayor of Philadelphia. This time, the church's leaders promised that if they just leave the central church, that the church would sort it out during the week. So that week, the church voted to integrate. But then there's also another story of the central church, and it's worth telling. The church had invited a group from Oakwood at one time to come present some things on Sabbath. And in this story, the church wasn't all white, but they did require black people to sit in a certain area. When that area was filled up, the Oakwood students began sitting elsewhere because they were there to, to you know, put on a program. So if I can't sit here, i got to sit somewhere else. The deacons, again, sprung into action to remove them. Well, the students didn't want to be removed. They were there for the program. That's when an elder pulled out a revolver and said, I've got six bullets here, and they all say, let's just say the N-word on them. Distraught, a pastor's wife tried to reassure the students we love you, N-word, but we just don't want you to sit next to us. Wait, what? We love you, but we just don't want you to sit next to us? I don't know if there's a single sentence that better encapsulates <laughs> the feelings of many white people 
towards black people in the Adventist church during this time. Right? Like no one's going to openly say we hate you guys. No, no, no. We love you, right? Christ died for all of us. We just don't want you to sit next to us. Now, I don't know exactly how both of these stories could be true. In one story, they had a section for black visitors, and in another, they didn't have a section, it seems. But it's not hard to find ways to reconcile them. Regardless, it gives you and I the idea of how the church happened to be missing the boat, not in terms of benevolent public pronouncements from on high, but at the level of the pew. Right? We, we spend a lot of time in this podcast talking about what general conference people did, what conference or union people did, what missionaries did. Like This is something that's happening in a local church. Regardless of what the general conference says or anybody else says, this is something that's happening at the local level. Now, a black student at Union College wrote this in his school paper, quote, As much as I love the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church in particular, I can no longer be silent on this matter. The Seventh-day Adventist Church has relentlessly championed the cause of the abolition of tobacco and alcoholic beverages from our society. We have also cried for the extermination of Sunday blue laws. Are these subjects so great and man's human rights so small that it deserves no public mention and consideration? I do not wish the Seventh-day Adventist Church to become overly involved in any civil rights action, but I do wish it would come out of its sleep, for there is a revolution going on. End quote. And yet this letter, simple, passionate as it is, couldn't go unanswered because one of the editors of that school paper, who would later, by the way, become a very prominent pastor, and I'm not going to name him because I think he's still alive, but he, anyways, he responded to this letter to the editor with his own letter to the editor. Okay, he was one of the editors, and when this letter came in from this black student, he read it and said, I'm going to respond to this letter in the same issue of this paper, okay? So you read the first one by the black student, then this white student had his reply following. And basically, in his reply, this editor made it clear that the Adventist church had a quote-unquote Negro vice president, okay? This was in the uh, 1960s. What's more, he said, he knew of a colored church which chose not to integrate, a church where white ministers freely visit and everyone gets along splendidly, making, quote, the colored brethren feel that their separate yet equal rights are superior to civil and united rights, end quote. Now, the editor went on, such relationships between black and white Adventists, quote, do far more good than a hundred lectures, pamphlets, or rallies for a just civil rights cause, end quote. Man, you know, you, you can still hear people saying stuff like this today, guys. We don't want segregation. They want segregation, and that's fine because it works out better that way. So why agitate? Why insist on your rights? Why cause trouble? Dude, America is a country <laughs> that fought two wars with Great Britain precisely to gain political independence and civil rights. In the case of the second war, they just didn't like the fact that, that Britain was pressing American sailors, forcing them basically to work as slaves on British warships. Give me liberty or give me death. No, 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 not for you. You know, it just it just baffles the mind how a country that 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 claims as its origin stories or its origin story 
as resisting tyranny in defense of liberty could then write, you know what, why are you agitating for your own rights? Well, as I said earlier, Brown versus Board of Education is considered the catalyst for the modern civil rights movement. But ruling that public schools needed to be integrated was not the same as actually integrating them. Some southern states made a show out of ignoring the Supreme Court rulings. George Wallace, governor of Alabama, made the most infamous stand. Where did one begin with Wallace? (laughs) Wallace chose to be inaugurated into office as governor on the very spot where Jefferson Davis had accepted the presidency of the Confederate States in the Civil War 102 years earlier. He then tried to stop the integration of the University of Alabama. He whined that President Kennedy was handing the country over to Martin Luther King, whom he considered to be a communist. Wallace warned that integration would harm the white race by creating mongrels, that's what he called it. Wallace was governor when the marchers in Selma began to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge after police had shot a black man And Wallace's law enforcement troops were waiting for them, some with Confederate flags. Some of them had whips and clubs wrapped with barbed wire, and they began beating the crowd. Where were they trying to march? To Governor Wallace's office 50 miles away. And who ordered the police to use, quote, whatever measures are necessary, end quote? Governor Wallace. Wallace was the poster boy of racism. Hated, despised, but also loved. George Wallace spoke for a lot of white people who believed that there was no satisfying civil rights leaders and who also feared that the federal government intervening in local politics was unconstitutional and would lead to tyranny, right? So what do I mean by the federal government intervening in local politics? I mean, if we're talking about integrating school, well, if the federal government says you guys need to integrate What are they doing? Some people in Washington or some people in this rural town here in Alabama, what they need to do. And then if they don't do it, what's the the federal government going to do? They're going to send some troops and force it. And that idea of being forced. I mean, this taps into something deep in the South, doesn't it? The idea of northern troops, so to speak, being sent to the South to force the South to do something they don't want to do. Well, that that taps into some century-long feelings right there. But what makes Wallace's attempt to halt the integration of the University of Alabama so strange is that it came so late. Alabama was the last of the big state-run universities to integrate in the South. The tide was turning, and yet he persisted. Six years earlier, it was another story. In 1957, nine kids were selected as the first black students to attend Little Rock Central High School in Arkansas. One of them, Terrence Roberts, was an Avenist who would go on to be the director of psychological services at St. Helena Hospital. When Terrence and the other kids showed up at school, the governor directed the National Guard to prevent these kids from going inside. A court overturned that order and told the kids, go to school. But the next day, a mob, including members of the National Guard, again prevented Terrence and the others from going to school. Well, over two weeks passed before the police were able to slip the kids into the school through a side door. But 
When people found out that they were inside, the school feared for the kids' safety and sent them home after just three hours of school. Get this, Dwight D. Eisenhower, hero of the Second World War, President of the United States, had to send the famous 101st Airborne Division to escort these kids to class. This was a division that had dropped behind enemy lines in France during the D-Day invasion, okay, the night before. And now they have to escort kids to school. Whew. Now, the Army could protect the kids on the outside. They couldn't protect the kids from the bullying on the inside. And after one year of integration, the school closed the next year, forcing Terrence Roberts and his family to move to California. And he would eventually leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well. Adventist schools were slower to integrate. What is now Southern Adventist University didn't integrate, didn't receive their, their first black students until 1968, five years after the University of Alabama. And it wasn't because the leaders at Southern were oblivious. Months after the University of Alabama became the last state college to integrate, editor-in-chief of the school newspaper, The Southern Accent, wrote, quote, For a considerable time now, there has been talk about SMC, that's Southern Missionary College, integrating. According to several administrators of the college, pressure is gradually being applied within the church itself and indirectly by the federal government, end quote. Now, the, the editor claimed that he was not necessarily for or against integration, that's how he put it, but decidedly against the power of the federal government to compel integration. Does that, does that line of argumentation sound familiar? Has somebody been saying something like that? Yeah, George Wallace. He complained that if the Civil Rights Bill passed, it would allow the government to withhold loans and other funds from any college it deemed to be discriminating on the basis of race. He goes on, quote, As for the Kennedys, who raised the cry of discrimination at the drop of a hat, we suggest they take another look because it appears that they are about to discriminate a little themselves, end quote. In other words, we white people are the real victims here. Now, I want to pause and just let you know, if you're white and you're listening to this podcast and look, I know it sucks to learn <laughs> that people who look like you didn't always do the right thing. I don't want you to think that these color line episodes are your standing in the boxing ring while historical punches just keep getting thrown at you. It's frustrating because you can't fight back, isn't it? You can't fix it. You can't undo this one. But the story has to be told. It just has to be told. So take a little mental break while I tell a little anecdote about Southern's student newspaper. All right. I went to Southern Adventist University some years ago. And one of the first things I did as a freshman was to start my own school newspaper, which I called the Northern Accent. The subtitle was because not everyone wants a Southern Accent. Well, I got shut down pretty quick and then I ended up working for the Southern Accent. So anyways, I don't really know if there was a great point to that story, but I love telling that story. Anyways, let's get back to work. The problem wasn't what one church or two churches or even a hundred churches did. There was just a profound misunderstanding on behalf of church leaders of the actual lived experiences of their black members. Now, my first instinct with this episode is to pick up Calvin Rock's Protest and Progress book, which is a very excellent book. But when I opened it to the table of contents, I noticed that he entirely skips the civil rights movement as a whole. He deals with periods before that and after that. But I read deeper and realized he does talk about bits of it here and there while talking about other subjects, like the case for the black unions and 
we'll talk about that in our final color line episode. But anyways, he, he shares this story about how Alabama Governor George Wallace was enlisted to read the Bible for a Voice of Prophecy event. Calvin Rock writes, quote, There could not have been a more racially tainted personality imaginable, end quote. Now, HMS Richards was the famous director of the Voice of Prophecy ministry, and, and uh, you know, he had a thing where he invited prominent Americans to read a portion of the Bible, which they then played for 87 consecutive hours beginning with mid and midnight on New Year's Eve. It was basically like, listen to famous Americans read the Bible kind of thing. So it's not like Wallace was the special guest. He was one of many, and he was a prominent American as a former governor. But the fact that HMS Richards invited him suggests that he wasn't too bothered by what George Wallace believed about race. And yeah, I agree with Calvin Rock. George Wallace wasn't just a racist. He stoked racial fears as a part of his politics, basically saying, you should be afraid, vote for me, and I'll protect you, right? I represent your fears. I've got your back. Well, on New Year's Eve, Rock sent a telegram to the General Conference President, Robert Pearson, asking him to intervene. I don't know how he could have, because, well, New Year's Eve is the day when these Bible recordings were going to start playing. But anyways, he sent it to him, and then he sent a telegram also to, to HMS Richards. Rock wrote, quote, We are happy that the governor likes to read the Bible, but we feel it ironic and discouraging that one who literally stood in the way of black children seeking an education in Alabama should read Psalm 1 in public under the banner of Adventism. End quote. It's unclear to me why HMS Richards chose Governor Wallace. I would love to learn about that someday. But what is clear is that black and white Adventists came to have two different ways of looking at the world. More on that in a bit. Now, my alma mater, Southern, was, as its name might suggest, at the forefront of this struggle. It wasn't the only school wrestling with this, okay? But, hey, it's in the South, where a lot of this controversy was, was especially tense. And it's a pretty good microcosm of what Jim Crow did, because Southern, once upon a time, Graysville Academy, once had a black student, a famous one, the biracial missionary and nurse, Anna Knight. Anna Knight attended Southern for one whole day. You see, a delegation of non-Avenists showed up at school to ask the principal whether the rumors were true that he had a black student. They actually used the word, the N-word. I'm not going to use that word. The principal asked Knight if she was a mulatto, and she said she didn't know what that word meant. Well, he said, quote, since the people are so angry about you, you'd better wait until I find out who you are, end quote. Anna never went back to class. She stayed at the school that semester, working and learning from those who worked there, but she never attended class. So when she returned home, people couldn't tell that she never attended class because she had been talking with the people who, you know, she, she learned a lot from talking to them. Now, it wasn't all bad. She did praise the church members there in Collegedale for being welcoming. But she didn't feel welcome. She never returned to school to that school. According to Philip Warfield, she was the last black student until the 1960s. Now, I say this is a microcosm of Jim Crow because it's not like black students were never able to attend schools until this modern civil rights movement. On the contrary, some of them were beginning to attend school and beginning to exercise their civil freedoms until these Jim Crow laws started reversing this progress. It's the same thing we see with women in the church. We had women conference presidents, and female directors and pastors, and so on, until suddenly we just didn't. 
And in some ways, the Adventist church still hasn't regained the progress in these areas it once had. Now, there's a story of the famous black evangelist E.E. E. Cleveland when he was an evangelist for the Southern Union in the early 1950s. During a meeting at Southern, the Union president announced that it was time to eat, so Cleveland went and stood in line at the cafeteria. The few other black people there did not follow him, and things got a little tense. A staring contest between Cleveland and the Union president ensued. And this is how Warfield describes it. Fine, the president spat. Quote, I guess the rest of you can eat in the dining hall. Get in line, end quote. That stings. But consider it from this angle. E.E. E. Cleveland was soon to be, if he wasn't already, a made man. He was known. He was accused of poaching members from other churches at an evangelistic series in 1954. So some local preachers came to check it out. And by local preachers, I mean Martin Luther King Jr. and Ralph Abernathy. Now, King wasn't impressed. Quote, I was informed that a black Billy Graham was preaching the gospel, but all I heard was the law, the law, and the law, end quote. Cleveland, not one to, uh, <laughs> to miss an opportunity, shot back, quote, you must have arrived late because all I preached was the Lord, the Lord, and the Lord, end quote. I know that this event and King's fame were yet still in the future, but when you sit and you think about it, were his gifts not evident? Are you going to show visible disgust that this man dared to eat in a dining room at Southern? Oh, and Rosa Parks, by the way, also attended those tent meetings of E.E. E. Cleveland's. And this is what made it so difficult, because many of these black Adventists, starting with Louis Sheaf back in the day, were somebodies. They were somebodies everywhere except their own denomination. Now, Southern's Student Association Talent Program, 1960, featured students in blackface. 1962, the gymnastics team used a Confederate flag which the Army of Northern Virginia had made famous during the Civil War. That's the flag you think of when you think of the Confederate flag, even though there were many. This was a problem. In 1961, Frank Hale created the Layman's Leadership Conference, LLC, to form a coalition, kind of like Martin Luther King's Southern Christian Leadership Conference, that would push to end segregation in the church. He sent out a letter. Quote, we hate to admit that the evidence supports the fact that Negro Seventh-day Adventists serve a subordinate role in the life and program of the, of the denomination. Too long we have equivocated. Too long we have excused. End quote. The LLC asked to meet with GC leaders before the 1962 General Conference session. Those leaders apparently refused. So the LLC members protested the General Conference session. Now that, that got the media's attention. The 1962 General Conference session did elect Frank Peterson, a black Adventist, to be a new GC vice president. That's the one who was referred to in a previous quote by that, uh, that, by that student at uh, Union, that editor. But church leaders said that Frank Hale's thousand-person protest had nothing to do with it, right? We weren't influenced by the protest. We were just uh, keeping our eyes on who would be the best person for the job, right? Inside the meetings, GC President Ruben Figure brushed off the protest and promised, quote, this church believes in the integration of all peoples regardless of race, and this has been its stand through the years, end quote. Really? Is, is that what we call this? Is that what E.E. E. Cleveland experienced in the early 1950s? 
Now, it is true that the General Conference announced in 1961 that their schools should prepare for integration. The words were there. Okay? The words were there. They were in place. But boy, was there no hurry. Hale's protest at the 1962 GC session was sparked in part, I would say, what helped make it really popular, what got the media's attention, because of the refusal of Mount Vernon Academy in Ohio to admit a 13-year-old black Avenist student. Now, Mount Vernon defended itself, it should be known, by saying that since it was funded by the Ohio Conference, and because this you know, it wasn't a regional conference. It was a state conference. The regional conference is the one to which this black Avenus family belonged to. It weren't in the same conference, even though they lived in the same state. Okay, because Mount Vernon was a was a was a constituent institution of the Ohio Conference, that it allowed members of its own conference to to obtain enrollment before considering students from other conferences. Frank Peterson, newly elected GC vice president, that we mentioned said that the General Conference has no authority to force Avenus schools to take particular students and that the separate regional and state conferences exist because black Avenus wanted them to exist. That's what he told the media. Okay, But the black Ohio family behind this thought there was more to it because Mount Vernon's registrar invited the family to look at Pine Forge Academy in Pennsylvania, which is a black Avenus school. And if this wasn't about race, then why not recommend other predominantly white schools. Why only recommend that one? And the family said that they encountered a similar problem with their extended family who had kids, and they wanted to send their kids to a junior academy in Detroit that was predominantly white, and that school had claimed that they couldn't accept black students because it would be unfair to a nearby black school. Well, the new principal of this junior academy said that they didn't have a policy of segregation, but things just worked better when there was a white school and a black school. Well, the Ohio student's father said, quote, our fathers had to take this, but I don't want to take it, end quote. The papers carried the Mount Vernon story. President Figure had to respond to it at the GC session. It was frustrating. He didn't like that Black Avenue seemed to run to the press to lay charges of racism or discrimination. And yet, to the family in Ohio, what ought you to do? They appealed to the Ohio Conference. They had asked for a meeting with the General Conference, all without success. And, and it seemed frustrating to them because Mount Vernon's, you know, as they elaborated in their defense, they would say, we only have room for 300 students and there's enough kids in Ohio to fill the school without taking in kids. So, you know, I mean, th this is kind of the challenge, right? Because that, that reasoning seems plausible, doesn't it? I mean, if that's true, I, I can imagine they had more than 300 Avenus kids in Ohio who wanted to attend there, and they only had room for 300. That very well might be plausible. But it might not. It could be an excuse. And you just don't know, do you? You just don't know for sure whether individuals and institutions who don't want to admit black students or black employees or whatever, you just don't know if, because if you're part of the hierarchy, if you're part of the institution, there's always a reason that you can give for why you don't want to admit a black student or whatever. You know that, right? There's always a reason, maybe even a good reason, but you just never know 
if this is really just about the reason or whether there's something underneath it. You know, like the reason is just a fig leaf. You just never know for sure. You have to try to read in between the lines. Well, it seems the only way to get a meeting with the GC these days is to start teaching heresy. As Robert Wheland and Robert Brinsmead and the like never seemed to fail to have a committee established to hear their concerns, did they? Now, you can't see this. In my manuscript, heresy is in air quotes, okay? But I mean, you just got to stir up some theological controversy and you get a meeting. Otherwise, you're out of luck. Frank Hale had used this Mount Vernon situation to keep the media pressure on the GC. Figure wasn't happy with this strategy. You just didn't embarrass your church like this. You just didn't embarrass your church like this. I, I think that's generally the response from church leaders. It was frustrating for them. Like, why do you guys have to be like this? But I'm sure the response to that might have been, how else do you get things done? 1964, Southern Union had a new president, Leroy Leisky. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. Anyways, Leisky had declared, quote, I intend to integrate everything in this conference, end quote. Samuel London tells us that from the moment he announced that, people began plotting for his removal. London writes, quote, After a mere 13 months on the job, the Southern Union Conference removed Leisky from the presidency, end quote. But Leisky had moved things. It didn't take long, did it? Two regional conference presidents now sat on Southern's board. The order for integrating the campus had been given, and he pushed for the hiring of non-white faculty. And in 1965, Southern's board voted to accept any student, regardless of race or color. For people who say, well, these things take time. You got to move slowly. Leisky didn't. <laughs> I think that brother knew he didn't have a whole lot of time to act. And he moves quick. Now, it should be known that groups like the KKK made things difficult. It wasn't, you know, Adventism did not exist in a bubble. As much as some of us may prefer it that way. <clears throat> didn't live in a bubble. There were social considerations here at work, weren't there? The KKK in the Chattanooga area, made it difficult. Because as with Anna Knight, why did she only get one day at school? In part because local residents were Sunday keepers. They were not Adventists. They saw or heard a rumor that there was a black person on campus and, and Anna was, was, was fair-skinned. So she passed for white. But anyways, they heard that there was a black person on campus and that's they put the pressure on the school's principal. Now, 1960s, it wasn't any easier the KKK would still occasionally burn crosses in the area, and, and not just because of racial problems, okay? In one account, there was a white guy who was constantly drunk and lived off campus in Apison. I don't think he was Avenus, but he lived in Apison, Tennessee, and the KKK burned a cross in his front yard and just stood there in their white hoods staring at his house. They didn't have to say anything. They were telling him, sober up or else, right? Because the KKK, it wasn't, I mean, it was about race. It wasn't just about race. They were, they were trying to, 
kind of through fear, through intimidation, enforce some kind of code of morality. Whether it's white or black, of course. But I mean, that's that's freaking terrifying, isn't it? I mean, every time I go to a museum, I was talking in the Adventist History Extra podcast about visiting the Civil Rights Museum with um, some folks from Message Magazine and, and uh, NAD. Of course, Michael Campbell was there. And I tell you, I mean, you walk through this. I happen to walk through it alone because I, I missed a tour because I'm a doofus. And you round the corner, and there, like uh, in other museums, you see a, a, a fully clothed KKK uniform. It's terrifying. All right, I'm a white dude. It's terrifying. <laughs> like, it's, it really is. Uh, I don't know why, but it, it just is. And you just see that model, that that mannequin or whatever, just standing there in a display case. It's like, that's not good news, is it? It's not good news. So they, they, they put some pressure. They don't always have to be explicit about it. But knowing that they were there, knowing that they were watching, is this trouble you want right now? You have to ask yourself that if you're an administrator at Southern. Now, I want to make it very clear. I'm not here to pick on my alma mater, other Adventist institutions, wrestled with the same things, whether it's Southern or whether it's the General Conference building itself. Okay? It's just, with Southern, it just happened to be the church's only major college in the South where the environment made it especially difficult. The 1960s were a conflicted time, and church leaders, their their initial instinct was caution. It's kind of like they were saying, we don't know where the civil rights movement is leading. Let's wait and see. And we know some of our good, solid members are against it, especially in the South, so let's go slow. Change takes time. And President Figure, basically, he, he actually publicly called for a middle-of-the-road approach to social issues for Adventists. And, and he said, Ellen White tells us to, quote, avoid any suggestion of extremism, end quote. Now, Charles Bradford, another prominent black Adventist who would go on to be the first black president of the North American Division, he wrote to Figure, quote, How can we be silent on the matter and present it as an option or non-essential when great segments of our church membership do not understand that the frown of God is upon all who do not recognize and appreciate the dignity and intrinsic worth of every man? We must teach all our people, white and black, that they cannot pray, for our, uh, pray to our Father when wounding Christ in the person of his saints. End quote. Of course, the highlight of the civil rights movement was Martin Luther King's famous March on Washington, 1963. 250,000 people joined King through the streets of D.C. Avenus, white and black, joined the crowd. Many did so fearing retaliation from church leaders and so didn't always publicize that they were there. Not a lot of people taking selfies on Instagram, okay? But sometimes it was hard to hide case of Yolanda Clark, because she stood a few feet away from Dr. King as he delivered his historic speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Now, Clark was to be in the choir, but just before the choir sang, she was told they needed her on the organ. And Ben Baker wrote an article in 2015 for the Adventist Review, which highlighted three Adventists who were standing on the the dais that day, Clark and another organist and singer, Dickie Mitchell from Oakwood, who performed with Mahalia Jackson. So, cool. Then there's also Gordon Barnes, a minister as well. 
Now, Clark watched Dr. King's speech with tears in her eyes, and after it was over, she recalled, quote, I felt that God was using everybody that was at that march to speak for all of those people who couldn't speak for themselves, end quote. Of course, not everybody agreed with that sentiment. After the march, Adventist editor Raymond Cottrell pushed back against the idea that the church should seek social change. The problem, as Cottrell saw it, was that, quote, every public issue has moral overtones, end quote. So it seems that when the church speaks out on one issue, they're going to have to take a position on every issue. And the tangling of church and state, therefore, seems inevitable. Cottrell made the point even finer by citing the example of Jesus. Quote, when requested upon one occasion to use his influence to force a decision involving social justice, he replied, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? End quote. Is that the uh, Adventist policy of the day? Where do you guys stand on civil rights? Does the church reply, man, who made me a judge or a divider over you? Well, Frank Hale wasn't buying it. Avenus Hale wrote to Cottrell, had no problem seeking, quote, legislative support and to influence public opinion for their position in the areas of temperance, Sunday laws, and health reform, end quote. Sounds exactly like what that young man at Union College had written earlier in his article. So it seemed to Hale that the church wasn't standing on its own principle of non-activism. It was simply picking and choosing which issues required the church's activism and which didn't. So, it goes without saying, why do you think this issue, civil rights, doesn't deserve the church's activism if these other issues do? The editor of the review, our old friend F.D. Nickel, would offer a similar position two years later in critiquing what he called the social gospel element of the civil rights movement. Nickel was responding to a letter he had received demanding to know where Seventh-day Adventist pastors were when pastors from other denominations were taking part in a series of freedom marches around the country. Nickel icily replied that Adventist pastors were in the hard and dangerous places of the earth preaching to what he called primitive depressed peoples. And other Adventist pastors were out visiting the sick and preaching the gospel. And I think Nichols's point was very clear. Adventist pastors True, good Adventist pastors were busy doing the work of God, not marching in the streets. Nickel did report, however, that a GC committee had been making progress on race relations in the church. He acknowledged that, for some, the church wasn't moving fast enough. To that, he replied, quote, The rate of speed is not so important as the direction in which one travels. End quote. Well, I think that's basically a true statement. Right? It doesn't matter how long it takes you to get somewhere as long as you're getting to the right place. But I think this comment illustrates how white and black Adventists had come to see the world in two different ways. The rate of speed indeed doesn't matter much if you're going to visit grandma. Unless she's baking you tamales like my grandmother around Christmas time. In which case, the rate of speed does matter because your family is going to eat all those tamales. Anyways, I digress. Okay, Usually, the rate of speed doesn't matter as long as you get to where you want to go. But... If you're trying to get to the emergency room, the rate of speed very, 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 very much does matter. Okay? White Adventist leaders, okay, I'm, I'm point, painting with a very broad brush here, just didn't see the urgency. This wasn't a trip to a national park. This was a ride to a hospital. 
These leaders failed to notice that there had been decades of asking nicely for change, and it hadn't gotten anyone anywhere. These leaders failed to empathize with their black members, and Nichols's attitude was paternalistic. He was just saying, hey, calm down. Trust your leaders to do the right thing. It may take us a while, but we can't rush these things. When Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated April 4th, 1968, review editor Ken Wood wrote the editorial response. Wood explained that someone had asked him to, quote, express sympathy to our Negro friends on their terrible loss, end quote. Wood wrote that he was startled by the thought. Quote, it had not occurred to us that their loss was any greater than our loss, end quote. Wood said that Martin Luther King, quote, belonged to all the people, regardless of race. His death was a loss to all mankind, end quote. And yet, Wood acknowledged that, quote, the shame of the deed rests on the white race, end quote. Now, Wood tried to make this into a sermon about the value of all people everywhere, not just famous ones like MLK, and okay, point well taken. And it's clear that he appreciated King, but it's also clear that he didn't fully understand what King meant to African Americans. To the suggestion that King's death might have mattered more to African Americans, Wood essentially responded, all deaths matter. Wait, that kind of sounds familiar. Anyways, when you trace the story of the color line, you see that the voluntary segregation that began as a matter of expediency in the 1890s until, as Ellen White said, the Lord shows us a better way, that voluntary segregation, that expedient situation, had become an involuntary segregation where church leaders no longer understood the hopes and aspirations of one-fifth of their members. And if I may put it bluntly, my friends, the Lord didn't show us a better way. The world did through the civil rights movement. And now, look, I'm just making a rhetorical point. I'm not saying that the Lord wasn't in the civil rights movement, didn't have a hand in shaping that outcome. I'm just trying to express that it took a wider social movement to change things in the Adventist church and in other churches, okay? We're not alone in this. Now, of course, every Adventist leader today can boast of the church's diversity as if it was the plan all along. It's clear that the issues raised concerning race in the 1960s have not really been addressed. I want to make it very clear that progress has been made, and we're going to do one more Color Line episode, and we're going to bring ourselves up to date. But the same dynamics that existed in the 1960s are, in some places, still in place. It's almost as if, well, as Rusty Reno put it, it's always 1968 somewhere. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Avenus History content, then go subscribe to Avenus History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Avenus History Project. You can get access to Avenus History Extra on the website, which is avenushistoryproject.org, or by becoming a patron at patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Avenus History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Avenus History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Avenus History Conference. What's more, 
just as a second announcement for you. Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening.